Welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. I'm your guest, Al Williams. And we are your hosts, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. This is episode 226. Al Williams is one of the authors behind Hackaday, a website that features electronic projects and other things that appeal to people interested in computers, electronics, and technology. Al has worked on everything from underwater technology to the International Space Station and just about everything in between. So Al has also been on previous podcast episodes, 57, 94, and 160. So for his fourth time back, thank you, Al, for coming onto our podcast. This time we're going to get it right, I think. That's the... Uh... Fourth time's a charm. <laughs> fourth yeah. time's the charm, exactly. <laughs> And, so this uh, time we're uh, we're going to be talking about uh, uh, simulation, uh, which is uh, a topic that actually, surprisingly, in 2019, we've been going a little bit deeper into. So uh, we're going to kind of take a bit of a deep dive and figure out uh, quite a bit more about it here. Because Al Williams is a complete expert in simulation, right? I don't think I'd go that far, but I do <laughs> enjoy working. You know, I, I, I think it's the same reason I like 3D printers, right? I always said, boy, when, it, when they were first coming out, I said, man, I really need a 3D printer because I can imagine a lot of things, but I'm too clumsy to build a lot of things. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, me building stuff is always a recipe for disaster and frustration, and I'll eventually get it done. But, you know, I have seen people who can just say, hey, I have an idea, and throw it together in five minutes, and then, oh, wait, let me change this. So I'll pull these three pieces out and redo it. Uh, I'm lucky to get it built once and not have it look like a, a, a hot mess. So... So I really enjoy being able to, say, draw something on CAD and then have it pop out of the 3D printer. And I really think simulation's a lot like that, especially now. I mean, we have so many great simulation tools, many of which are either very affordable or free. Uh, you know, back in the, you know, back when I was in school, back in the dark ages, you know, you punched cards to spice, literally punched cards and dropped them in. That wasn't very conducive and nobody liked that. But now... You know, you can sit and diddle with it on the screen and the graphs change and you get the FFT plot and all that. And it's really very cool. Um, so I don't know if I'd bill myself as an expert on, on any of that, but I do think it's an interesting part of the world is to be able to, you know, sit and play on the computer and then have something that comes out to be relatively uh, close to the real life. And that's really the key, right, is how close can you get to real life? So I mean, you guys use some simulation tools, I'm sure, right? We were we were kind of bordering on that before the show. What uh, what are you guys using these days? Well, for me, I use uh, well. I for the longest time, I was a piecewise user uh, because we not only were we taught that in school. Uh, basically every lab we had to run in school required a pre-lab that was all done in piecewise. So you had. You know, it, it, frankly, I'm going to go off on a quick little rant here, but but for the most part, there was this grand idea that these labs were supposed to teach you, but they never really, at least at my school, they, they were very bad at getting you to like actually figure out that grand thing. So you would simulate everything, you'd get a bunch of numbers, you'd go to the lab, and then you wouldn't get those numbers in real life, and then they'd say, well, you were supposed to, and this is what it was supposed to be and like you get confused more than than anything and if you and knowing that if you went back and redid it you'd be like oh this is great i get it now you know but uh but yeah no a piece spice was was mainly from school but given its expense i've actually never worked at a place that was willing to actually purchase piece spice so i recently jumped over to lt spice because it's readily available and uh e equally as powerful in my opinion 
Yeah, it's excellent. I really enjoy using it, and it, it actually runs nicely under Wine, which uh, is, is a big thing for me because I just despise booting into Windows if I don't have to. <laughs> I even moved my Surface Book over to Linux, so I, I'm, I still have Windows on it just because there, you always have to have some window box you can boot in an emergency, right? But uh, I've, I've almost completely gotten off Windows. So, How about you, Parker? What are you simulating these days? So I, I typically don't do a lot of simulation. Um, cause I mainly do digital stuff. Um, any kind of, I, I, I think the last thing I simulated was, a an analog filter that I needed for, uh, I can't remember what project that was for. It's been such so long time. It's just one of those, um, you know, most of the time I, I'm doing microcontroller stuff, but like Steven, um, when I was in school, I did a lot of DSP stuff and we did simulations for that, but I can't remember the program. It must've worked with, uh, national instrument stuff. What's their? You mean the the lab uh, lab view stuff? Lab view, yeah. But there's a, there's another module for that. That's for simulation. We did a lot of that in our DSP classes because you had to you had to uh, write code and then simulate what it was going to do, like kind of like beforehand because you couldn't have your your DSP board you know everywhere with you. Well, you know, uh, actually, there's a lot of work now in co-simulation where you have a microcontroller simulator and analog and, you know, digital and all that sort of stuff. So, I mean, you see that with some of the system-on-chip stuff now. But we ran an article. I was actually looking for it. Um, there's several of the Arduino uh, programs that will do that, like SimuIDED. I'm yeah, sorry, I've, I've seen those. Yeah, um, where you know you can write your code and you can have it, you know, blink the proverbial LED or whatever the, and it shows the LED blinking. Right? Uh, there's a couple of those, and there's one I think Proteus, I think, but it's pricey, relative, you know, pricey for hobbyists. It's not price, it's not piece by pricey, but it's uh, it's relatively pricey. But there's a couple of free options for that, and there's actually a website that uh, I was looking for the other day that actually has some like puzzles you can do. And I think that's another interesting part to simulation, just like you brought up, is a lot of times you can use that for student work. And if it's good enough, right, then you know, that, that's something that you can do. Uh, did you ever see the ED, is EDX, right? MIT started that uh, online university kind of stuff, and a lot of universities have jumped on it. But they've got that one electrical engineering course that was like one of the first ones they did, and it's excellent. Um, oh, what's the professor's name that did that? Agrol, I think, or something like that. But the work they did on that, you would have a problem, and it would say, like, well, here's an oscillator, and, you know, get the output to be 2,000 hertz, uh, you know, with a certain, you know, characteristics. You would do that, and it would all be simulated, and you could even, like, route the output of the simulation to your PC speakers. Hmm. So this is all online, and it's just, you know, talk about going into the lab and trying to have that, that aha moment, like you say, that was really the closest they could do without having to say, okay, go buy this kit of parts and, you know, get your oscilloscope out. It was all there in your browser screen. I was very impressed with that. Yeah, it's just I haven't really found a a way to simulate some – because, like, if I, I know there's some Arduino simulators where you can put in code and it will simulate what the output of the, you know, 18 mega 328P will do. But, like, I, a lot of times I'm not doing Arduino stuff. I'm doing, like, PIC right. or I'm doing um, – uh, Silicon Lab stuff, and there doesn't seem to really be any really good simulators for that. So it's, a lot of times it's it's flash it on the on the chip and then pause the program yeah. at a certain spot and see what the output is. 
Well, you're lucky to have that. You know, we used to just always hook a scope up to one pin, and if you it went high, that meant you got to that part of the code, right? Exactly. Did. Yeah. That, that, <laughs> so. No, that's that was actually the uh, in my first digital logic class. Um, we were programming Freescale 9s12s, and we had to do it in assembly. And that was our debug method: was you light up the LED on the board when you got to a certain section of code. Yeah. So you, you would do that for your interrupt, like okay, good. I actually programmed the interrupt section right. right. So it actually, you just got didn't know there. if you ever got out of it, but yeah, correct. <laughs> you, do you, you know what the uh, Arduino, um, uh, the uh, the Arduino version of that is? Just print f's of like hello or I'm here, yeah. like all over the place. Yeah, <laughs> you say that. I do that all the time when I'm writing Python scripts. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So, yeah, so there are some mixed signal stuff, but, you know, I've been very interested. I mean, there's a lot of opportunity to do analog and digital with a lot of the simulators that are out there now. And, you know, we were talking a little bit before. Oh, no, there's uh, that. Uh, sorry to interrupt, Al. I do remember yeah. the last time I uh, did that uh, simulation is we simulated MOSFET driving for my pinball controller I'm developing. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah gate capacitance effects and things like that. Yeah, yeah, so we were trying to figure out, okay, given a certain rate for these MOSFETs, are we going to make sure we're turning them on and off fast enough base or slow enough, basically, so you don't burn them up? So, yes, yeah. we actually did to do some simulation. And I guess were that's you picking up the models from the manufacturer to do that, or correct? That yeah. was done in uh, we actually did that in P Spice, and uh, P Spice had a default library for the manufacturer. Like, our, that's that's one of the big benefits, in my opinion, of P Spice is that they have just their their libraries are they feel way more complete like you with lt spice you get you get lt parts and yeah well you got to make know, they the have rest. a vested interest right but of course but right. the nice thing is though you can use regular spice models with it right you just have right. to know how so they don't prevent you from doing it they just don't make it trivial it's not point and click to get those those other vendors models in there and and, you can and, and blame I, them for that Honestly, though, for me, I'm not a I'm not a coding kind of guy. It just just not, and and that's one of the hardest part about Spice is that it just seems like there's a lot of information that you just have to know in order to get yeah. things working, and it doesn't feel complete. It feels a little bit hacky to me. But once you do get it, you get it. It's just like, well, how was I supposed to know how to do that? You know. And luckily, luckily, there's a lot of resources. You know, there are a lot of other programs out there that are comparable and some of them are not vendor locked to where you've got a you know you do have a broader library yeah i mentioned earlier we before the podcast you know one of the things we talked about in hackaday recently was uh microcap 12 which was some commercial product that i think basically one guy developed and it's really great it, it looks it looks awesome uh, but it's got a large library it does all sorts of things like noise analysis and monte carlo analysis and things like that that you don't normally associate with something like that and i think he was selling it for don't quote me but i think it was about six thousand dollars and he had been selling it for quite some time well i guess he retired and essentially just dumped it out onto the internet as a freebie uh, so a lot of people have been making youtube tutorials about that it's not a trivial program to use like you might expect i mean actually lt spice isn't either you just everybody's been using it for a while because it's been around a long time um but I think you're, you know, to your point, I've always found that to be true too. There's a lot of little tribal knowledge things. Like if you ever build an oscillator in most of the spice programs, 
it doesn't work, right? <laughs> and so you have to know, well, I have to kick it with this, or I have to make sure the capacitors are modeled this way because the trapezoid, mo you know, there's always these little things you got to go tweak to get an oscillator to actually do what it'll really do on the bench. Or I did an article probably four or five years ago on Hackaday about simulating transformers. You know, that ought to be pretty easy, right? But it's <laughs> not. And you have to kind of do this black magic thing and make two inductors. And what's the what's the coefficient of coupling between them? Whoa, that's on the data sheet, right? You know, so <laughs> <laughs> especially if I'm hand winding them on a T50 toroid or something, uh, you know, what, what's the coefficient coupling? I don't know. If I knew that, I wouldn't need to simulate the circuit, right? So, <laughs> um, so there's a lot of things like that. And I agree, we've got a long way to go to, to really get there. But there are a lot of different choices, you know, and, and GNU caps out there. There's one that I don't think gets enough love, and it's called Zeiss. I'm actually working on an article of that right now. You guys ever hear of Zeiss? No. How's Rhymes that spelled? Spice. It's spelled... I'm going to look it up because I don't know. It's X-Y-C-E. Zeiss. And I wouldn't have been able to pronounce that other than the first thing on its website says rhymes with spice. <laughs> but it's They're self-aware. It's from Sandia National Laboratory. So it's probably got, you know, it's probably looking over your shoulder. Who knows? No, I'm kidding. But, um, but it's actually a spice derivative, but it's made for like massively parallel processing and it doesn't have to have that, but apparently it can simulate really big circuits. Because, you know, that's the other thing. What do you do in LT Spice? Like Parker said, you know, you do a filter, you do a... But you're not really going to say, oh, I'm building a single sideband transceiver and I'm going to simulate all of it from start to finish. But I think this thing could do it and have reasonable run times. Wow. Um, so I always want to kind of play with that and I don't ever really have a project big enough. Um, there's another vendor that's got a Spice out that's kind of interesting, which is Tina. Uh, TI has some version of that, and I, I don't know if the, I don't think the TI and Tina actually stands for TI. I think it's just a coincidence because I think, is it Infineon or one of the other houses actually has a licensed version of that also that you can get for free, and it's pretty professional. But the freebie versions have some limit, right? You know, 100 components or something. But I almost never hear of anybody using that. So as successful as LT Spice has been at getting everybody to use that. Um, I, I never. I mean, you guys ever see anybody use Tina, or had you ever heard of it before? Or? I never heard of it. I'm looking at it right yeah. now. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, it's out there, and you know, there's a big companies behind it, but it just no one seems to know it's there. Um. So you know, I guess that's a. You know, LT Spice is like you know they always say Coke has so many products because that keeps the other products off the shelves, right? You, <laughs> once you have to stock forty Coke products, so maybe that's the LT Spice effect is they've just kind of eclipsed all the other, uh, all the other little offerings like that. You know, uh, right on the front page of uh, the Tina, they ha they call out they have something like fourteen hundred microcontrollers, including PICs, AVRs, eighty fifty ones. Uh, and some ST micros and stuff that you can do in mixed circuit analysis, yeah. which that's awesome. That's really yeah, cool. So there yeah, you go, I wonder, I wonder right how there. those work. Is it, is it also simulating like the peripherals in that microcontroller? It should, yeah. I guess so. It, yeah, has, like, it, it, says it has a built-in MCU assembler, so I would think it would oh, yeah, do it. Then, yeah, it yeah. would totally have that. Because that's, that's actually the, that's, that's what I'm looking for is did I, did I set up my spy bus hardware correctly so it spits out the right stuff without right. having to program and compile Cause, you know it's like 30 seconds to compile then you got to run it then you got to check your dla see if your output's right but it'd be nice just to see that if it was right 
you know, I'm older than you guys. This is a first world problem. Yeah, it takes me 30 seconds to compile. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking I don't have to spend three hours erasing an EEPROM. I'm pretty happy, you know. So uh, anyway. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, you ought to check that out. And there, there's a couple of others out there that do that same sort of thing. Like I say, I think uh, Proteus, I think, is that the way? It was one of them that it does that. And I think they have a variety of processors and there's several others that we've covered that uh, uh, you know I talk about the Arduino ones but that's really just a you know an Atmel chip which is owned by microchip now anyway so there's there's quite a few options there in that area all right so uh, okay so microcontroller is three six but FPGA stuff though on the other hand is like 10 minutes so <laughs> yeah 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 well so you try doing some of mine I got some that you know you go to bed after and wait for it in the morning and then that's always a problem because you sit and go Gee, now what was the change I made that you know six hours ago? So yeah, there's there's uh, and some of those FPGAs are the, especially the more expensive ones are getting really large, so it takes a long time to to get everything packed up on those. Uh, speaking of FPGAs, though, you know that is one of my favorite simulators to just go knock something out in is that uh, uh, EDA Playground. I think maybe we talked about that on one of the previous podcasts, but that's a you know you go on that website and there's all these. Now, that's simulation of a different sort, right? It's Verilog or, or VHDL. Uh, they do have Python and System C and, you know, things like that. But you can go in there and use some really expensive commercial tools for free. And, you know, I, I'm sure they know nobody's going to go put their top secret encryption algorithms in this browser text editor. Uh, so I, I'm sure the you might be surprised. feel like it's, well, yeah, might, might not be, yeah. But normal people, you know, people that actually matter are going to not do that. But uh, it's a great way to go play with some of those tools and actually, you know, you don't have to install anything. I can't tell you how many times I've been at somebody else's computer and want to talk about something and just say, oh, here, because I don't have to go, well, what version of this do you have? Let's go install Icarus or let's do this, you know, just put that on there and off you go. Uh, so I really like that. I don't know how they can afford to do it, and uh, I'm sure the vendors support some of that, but it's uh, really cool. And there's a lot of little spice hanging around in other websites like that, right? Like Easy EDA. I don't know if you guys have ever seen that or not. Mm -hmm. uh, it's actually a pretty credible PC board layout program in a browser, but it also has spice. And I don't know. You guys may have a different perspective than I do, but I never find my PC board layout schematic capture is very conducive for spice, right? Because it's just different goals. So I, you know, if I'm going to do spice, I usually do that in some program like LT Spice that I'm going to use. And then when I want to do schematic capture for the board, I'm in some other program. But a lot of them, I mean, KiCad uh, or however you want to pronounce that, that has an integration with, I think, NG Spice now. Uh, you know, like I say, Easy EDA does that. DigiKey has some site that I can't remember now, but it will do simulation and schematic capture all in your browser with nothing to install. So that's kind of an interesting trend, too. Um, but the Falstead one, you know, that's the one that just it did run on, I think it was a Flash program, and then somebody converted it to HTML5. But I love that one. And, of course, if you're interested in, like, physics and stuff, that site has all sorts of physics simulations. But the circuit simulator is really awesome, um, you know, for just a quickie. And especially we were talking about educational uses. I use that all the time when I'm talking to students because it's not very complicated to use. It's got a bunch of sample circuits, and it does something that almost no other product I've seen does, which it visualizes the current as little animated dots, right? <laughs> 
So if something's drawing a lot of current, you can visibly see, you know, the little dots marching along, the electrons are flowing. And if the transistor shuts off, well, those dots slow down and start stopping, right? Or you watch a capacitor charge, you can really see that the current flow visualized. And that's really powerful if you're trying to, you know, do something in education. Um, I do a lot of Hackaday articles where we'll do simulation and you can actually take something simulated in Falsted. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but I think it's Falsted. And uh, you can actually convert that into a link, run that through tiny URL, and then if somebody clicks on that link, they come right back to the screen you were on with all the simulation and all the monitoring and the parameters. So that's really powerful when you're writing. You know, you can say, yeah, you know, here's a, I don't know, common base uh, uh, amplifier and da 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 and if you look click here and you can change r1 to double the value what happens right you know and uh, i think that's really an important thing i think you guys have heard me say this before but you know i go around to schools sometimes i tell the kids probably the teachers don't like this i'll say you know the purpose of math for engineering is frequently not to get the right answer it's to develop intuition about processes so if i tweak this number over here what does the number over here do does it go up does it go down does it go up as the same rate or twice as fast or exponentially that's really important and i think simulators answer or can answer that same question um they at least point towards it yeah and well especially i think too we i see a lot of people who don't fully use simulators because they just use it like you would build a breadboard and then probe on it right but one of the real powerful things is almost all the simulators including lt spice will let you do a step, right? So you can say, well, this resistor, I want it to go between 10 ohms and 100 ohms and 5 ohm steps and then plot all of it out in a big messy graph and I can look and see, oh, well, when it was 5 ohms, you know, this is what happened. When it was 15 ohms, this is what happened. And I think that's great for developing that kind of intuition. I don't think people do enough of that. You know, it's the same above and beyond that with uh, stepping temperature. You can you can get deep into that. Honestly, uh, the stepping along with uh, like Monte Carlo and worst case mm -hmm. uh, analysis is fantastic. I, I use that on a regular basis just to see like, yeah, sure, we calculated this is where the, you know, in this resistive divider, this is what we, the number says it's going to be. But in reality, if we have 1% resistors and we go across temperature, where's it actually going to be? Right. You really ought to check out that microcap 12. It really has a lot of features for that sort of thing. Uh, very nicely done. It runs pretty well under wine. I don't think I ever got the 64-bit version to run under wine, and whether that was just because it won't or because I was too lazy to do the requisite uh, voodoo. to <laughs> I didn't kill enough chickens and spread, uh, spread tea leaves or whatever you have to do to do that. But the 32-bit version worked at least seemingly well from what I did with it. Um, so, but I think that, you know, like for instance, that's interesting to me, uh, the microcap 12, because if I'm going to do something, I want that kind of power, right? But if I'm doing it like for students, unless they're like college students and really advanced, this would be, you know, you'd glaze over some junior high kid with that. That's where things like that Falstead simulator is really powerful because it's, it's approachable. It's easy. I think even LT Spice is pretty approachable. It's got some features that if you know how to use it is are daunting, but uh, you don't have to do those things, right? And uh, I, I like that. One of the things I've focused on the last couple of years on Hackaday, though, is maybe doing more simulation, if you will, by hand. 
And so I'll take a spreadsheet and say, you know, we're talking about, a, I don't know, an amplifier, and I'll, I'll model the amplifier on the spreadsheet. And you know how that is, right? Nobody's really going to do that, not when you can go get all these nice commercial tools that will let you do it. But sometimes just being able to look at some manageable spreadsheet with 20 equations on it and work through the equations and go change, make changes in it yourself and see what happens, sometimes that's kind of important i think to develop that intuition um i know well, yeah, we talked you're, about you in that case you can build your model and then you know how the models work yeah. and again you know when you change a value okay that actually changed or it goes into this formula which models this part of that amplifier so to speak yeah yeah so i've done a lot of that and i always think jupiter notebooks would be good for that although i haven't really done that yet um but I'm sure you guys have seen Jupiter, but uh, or you know, there's all sorts of kind of what Sage Math, and there's a bunch of different things like that. But um, but I think that would be really interesting to get into that. Now, whether that's approachable to a junior high student or a high school student, I don't know. It remains to be seen. But the you know the the other one that I've done, I know we talked about the FPGA boot camp last time I was on, or maybe not the last time. One of the one of the times I've been on. Yeah, uh, but that one, if you look at Bootcamp Zero, that one's about digital logic, and it actually uses Falstead in the way that I talked about, right? So you, you know, it says, well, here's a flip-flop, and it's uh, two cross-coupled gates, and you can see that here, right? And you can actually go see it, play with it, toggle the states, watch it change, you know, see what all the internal signals are doing. And it actually ends up with a very nice traffic light simulation, all done in Falstead in the browser, hmm. and it's a state machine. And so that was that's number zero because I didn't want to introduce FPGAs yet, right? So if you already know digital logic, you skip that one. But then on the subsequent ones, it's all in Verilog, and except for the one that's very specific for one piece of hardware, it's all done on that EDA playground. So it's the same way. You know, you say, okay, we're going to build this state machine. This is what it would look like. And by the way, not just here it is, go type it in yourself. You can click this link, and you're in an editor and a simulator, and you can do it. So I think that's a a really powerful way to use simulation. You know, uh, kind of just a quick uh, story on uh, doing simulation with spreadsheets. I, I, I did something recently with that. Uh, there's a there's a kind of a classic circuit that's been around for, I don't know, 30, 40 years for doing a, uh, uh, a triangle wave to a sine wave shaping in the analog domain well one of the uh, one of the ICs in that or at least one version of the IC is going obsolete so it's you know it's time it's 2020 let's let's develop a new way of doing that but we still want to do it in the analog domain and so I developed I developed a, a kind of a concept around it but I didn't necessarily want to jump immediately to LT spice because the biggest thing is I didn't know which components in my concept were uh, I guess the way I would label them as like strong components which ones are weak like if i change this resistor by 100 ohms does it just blow the whole signal out and if i change this one by 100 kilo ohms it doesn't do anything you know so so in, instead of going jumping right to lt spice i just developed the entire thing in uh in excel basically and i had excel plot its version of a perfect sine wave and then the output of my circuit and i just messed with values in in excel until they looked the same right yeah. and and then moved to lt spice and fine-tuned everything and it it made it made the whole circuit only take an afternoon of just you know it's way faster to change a cell in excel than change a value in lt spice and rerun and then figure right. it out and so 
worked out really well. But see, Parker wants the digital, but uh, have you guys ever seen the little man computer? <laughs> no, what's that? It's a, it's a little educational computer built in a spreadsheet. And because of that, I actually went, and there's a Hackaday article on this, of course, right? Everything, I you know, that's all I talk about, right? So um, <laughs> there's actually the old AT&T Cardiac computer. I re-implemented it in both a spreadsheet and an FPGA. Actually, that might have been in Dr. Dobbs now that I think about it. But, it. but I think I've probably talked about it in Hackaday, too. So you guys aren't old enough to remember Cardiac, but in the late 60s, early 70s, AT&T was sending out these little cardboard kits. And it was like a little slide rule. And it was this computer called Cardiac. So, you know, it had you wrote your program in the little slots and then the little cardboard piece moved. And it was like location five. That means take from this box to that box and erase it from that box and write it in that box. So it was all manual. But it taught kids the idea behind the computer. And so a simulator of a different kind. See, we'll all bring it back to. Oh, I'm saying computer in my uh, my Alexa. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's, of course, it does that. So we have to not use the C word. You may want to edit that out. Um, so anyway, I did the spreadsheet and FPGA implementation of that fake computer. So, But, you know, it's interesting, too. Uh, Parker was mentioning Python. We did an article a while back, and I say we. It wasn't me. Uh, somebody else wrote it on Hackaday. But there was somebody who has a really nice Python bridge for LTSpice. So that's kind of the best of both worlds, like you're talking about, because sometimes it is a pain to do stuff that you want to do in LT Spice, but you can almost like script it in Python and pick up the values and stuff. So you might want to check that out. Uh, I have not used it myself, so I can't vouch for it, but it seems like an interesting idea. I, I was actually, um, when you said little man computer, I almost thought, there, uh, I learned assembly on a, a computer called uh, LC, which is little computer. I mm-hmm. thought it was the same thing. I looked up little man computer. It wasn't the same thing. You know, I missed that, though, because I learned to program on a computer called Tutac, which was part of a Tutor text, and that was didn't exist, right? It was one of these things, you know, just conceptual. And, and of course, the Nuth had Mix, which was the same thing. A lot of people learned to program by programming Mix, which didn't exist. Uh, Caxton Foster had Blue that he used to teach computer architecture. And I know that was never built because when I did the FPGA implementation of it, there were problems with it <laughs> <laughs> that had gone undetected for 30 years, right? Uh, and so if you look on open cores, you can find my implementation of Blue on FPGA and with a lot of extensions. But, um, but I really think there's some value to that because, you know, if you were, say you're starting out new today and somebody says, hey, Stephen, here you go. Here's the x86 assembly manual. Thunk, right? It's 5,000 pages or whatever. Wow, where do you start? That's pretty daunting, you know. But if you say, well, here's 38 instructions and you get the concepts and then you can kind of pick up things as you go, next thing you know, that x86 manual is a lot less intimidating. So I, I kind of miss that. I think there's, there should be more of that where you don't immediately jump in and put your hands on everything and start writing real code and kind of focus on concepts. And I think simulation kind of lets you do that to some degree too, right? You can work on little things in isolation. Uh, I need a constant current source. What does that look like? Doesn't matter, right? It's a, <laughs> it's a box I drag from over here. I don't have to know what a Wilson current mirror is or, or anything else. But it was interesting going back to your pinball controller, Parker. I mean, you know, the reason I asked you about the models is because you live and die on the models, right? And and if you don't, if you're really doing it for real world, the quality of the model or the or the lack of fidelity on the model will will make or break it. So I've had some pretty 
weird experiences with that because a lot of people have that what I call calculator syndrome, right? You know, what's nine plus two? And you say, well, I put it in the calculator and because I messed up, but I don't realize it, it says 8,714. So that must be the answer. (laughs) And now I'm going to defend that answer to the death because it says so right on the calculator. And uh, I've seen that a little bit where people will simulate a piece of hardware, but it's just totally not accurate for the model and then they'll make assumptions of it so i've got a i got a quick story about that so i was about to say because earlier we said the right answer is not always the correct thing so i would be like oh yeah it's somewhere around 10 and 44 right yeah (laughs) (laughs) well there you go you if you if if your model is uh there should be like gps has the what is it the circle of certainty or whatever uncertainty maybe that's maybe that's the concept we need for for simulation but years ago it's a whole number right Yes, yeah, it's, a, it's a number. It's a number between you. All. That's how you be the correct weatherman, right? Tomorrow it will either rain or it won't rain. So I'm I'm always right. Tomorrow um, weather happens. <laughs> <laughs> Unless you're in Southern California, that's always sunny, and you're you're right 90% of the time. So, um, but years ago, I worked for a group that uh, did failure analysis on microcontrollers, and we had a technology assessment group. So I don't know if you ever deal with how that sort of thing works but you know do you ever wonder how they know like well this EEPROM will hold data for 38 years when they haven't been making them at that time for 38 years or whatever the number is so they do all sorts of things where they stress the parts and then extrapolate right so we oh we we pulsed it with this current and a million times and that's equivalent to a year and I don't know I can't explain the science behind it I don't know if I agree or not but no they but that's totally what they, just have time machines but that's what they do yeah right yeah we asked we asked the Terminator we, we, we <laughs> didn't see any of those parts of the Terminator so um, so one day uh, and these guys were mostly physicists and one guy came and he says and this is always funny to me because it, you know if all you see is bad parts all day which is what we did and you don't have any other experience then you kind of think well electronic parts are pretty unreliable and they don't work a lot of the time because that's all you see so the guy came up to me and you know you got to be careful answering questions because people ask questions and then you realize you don't want to answer that question you need to drive into the question that really they need to have answered and he said can you recommend a replacement for this transistor and he had some transistor number and i said well what are you doing with it and he said, well, he says, you know, we're doing this coil, this driver for these parts. And every time we go to Radio Shack and buy one of these transistors, they're bad. <laughs> and I'm like, what do you mean every time? And he's like, well, they, you know, 10 times it's been bad. And I'm like, well, that, that seems unbelievable to me, right? No, 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 you know, they're, they're bad. And we simulated the circuit. It's all, you know, I know it works. It's just we're getting bad transistors. I'm like, no, I said, draw me the circuit. Or he sent me the schematic. I'm looking at it. I'm like, yeah, you know, it looks okay. And it was... It was essentially a digital signal switching a NPN bipolar transistor. There was a resistor in the emitter, so it had a constant current, and it was basically just pulsing that current on and off. And so looking at it, it looked very simple, looked very straightforward, until I found out. I, fi- I finally said, well, let me go see what you're doing. I'm thinking, well, maybe they're putting the transistor in backwards. You know, I was looking for something like that. Turns out what I found was they were driving an enormous number of parts. And so the current going through the transistor was substantial. And it wasn't that the transistor couldn't handle it. It was a power transistor. But the emitter resistor was wire wound. (laughs) (laughs) Now, if you model that resistor as just a resistor, it works great. But if you modeled it in real life, it would have been a lot of inductance well, what happens when you have that little change in emitter current in the inductor? Giant voltage, right, based on the rate of change. Um, 
And so I think even my speculation was even just the early effect in the transistor was causing enough shift of current that it was just immediately popping the transistor. Uh, so of course we fixed that. I had to actually do a little research on that. I don't know if you guys, you guys probably know this, but they actually make low inductance wire wound resistors. They wind, I, I, I can't tell if they wind one coil and then back the other way, or if they use two coils winding in opposite directions, but there's some winding trick they use to lower the inductance on yeah, certain wire wound resistors. Yeah. They're trying to cancel out that magnetic, uh, yeah. Uh, coupling between the so you have to go shop for those you don't get them ordinarily but so that was a good case of where you know the model was correct it just wasn't correct for your part and that they had a very big um, real world effect I, I've done that too we had a simulated opto isolator circuit for a current loop transceiver and it worked great in simulation until we found out that that part did not have the slew rate to handle the baud rate that we wanted to do right so, of course, in the simulator, sure, you know, you could th probably throw a pick-a-second pulse through that opto-isolator and it would come out the other side. But in real life, of course, that was not the case. So that was a couple of long weekends getting that circuit working so we could ship something. So, hmm. Yeah, I've, I've, I've it, it, kind of in the same vein, I've noticed that uh, diode-on uh, diode characteristics don't always seem to match simulations very well like there's a there, there's there's quite a bit of of uh extra impedance that gets involved there and they try their best don't get me wrong the models are pretty intense but they're not always spot on uh we've been dealing with that recently about uh some some diodes that we've we've thrown into an oscillator circuit and the oscillator works fantastic but it just doesn't work as good as the simulation well, and there's even production differences, right? You were talking about 1% resistors. You know, there's always a... And I don't know if you ever tried to match resistors and notice that some of the vendors actually take out the closer values, right? So, like, if you get, say, 20% resistors, they're, none of them are going to be right around the center because they sort them out. <laughs> <laughs> they just core out the, the point were, ones. Yeah, so they, they, they basically, you know, filter out the point ones, then filter out the ones, then filter out the fives, then filter out the tens, and so... Uh, so a lot of times if you plot, you know, a bunch of resistor values, you'll have the dip in the middle because they've, they've taken them out. Um, so therefore, none of your resistors are the actual value you think they are. They're within tolerance. That's interesting um, that they would, uh, they bend them basically. Yeah, I'm not sure everybody does that, but I have seen that done where, you know, you have a pack of resistors and they, they're, none of them are the nominal value. Um, but I think it's interesting too that it depends a lot on your domain you're working in, right? So... Like, for example, we think of 1% resistors or even lower, right, 0.1%. Those are quality components. But like a capacitor, you know, those are iffy, right? You know, they're temperature sensitive. They're not. But if you look like on an IC die, you know, take you back a long time, the 68HC11 had an A to D converter on it. And that A to D converter used a charge device that depended on the ratio of capacitors hmm. to capacitors. So if you think about it, you know, especially in those days, processes were, this has been, you know, a number of years ago, I'll just leave it at that. But, you know, when the 68HC11 was current and a hot topic, uh, ion implanting a resistor on the die was iffy at best. And so what was its value? I don't know, plus or minus 20%, maybe. But the actual ratio between the thickness of two plates and the size of those plates, that's all photographically controlled. Well, the thickness isn't, but, you know, it's process controlled. It, the thickness is going to be the same regardless whether it's more or less than you think it is 
and the size is not going to be off at all. So the capacitors turn out to be the very precise component you need on the die. But if you'd have built that same A to D on your breadboard out of parts, it would have been a disaster. <laughs> so, you know, again, models everything, right? If you if you model your capacitors as perfect, well, the, not really. If you model the resistors as perfect, not really. Even wire, right? Wire's not perfect. So... I, I had a uh, I had a grad student in in school tell me once like well he, he uh, the first thing he he told me is don't don't go to grad school uh, just flat out but 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 he was he was saying like one of the first things when he got to grad school and he noticed that his colleagues were doing the same thing was like you know we've made it we've got it past undergrad like now it's time to like consider everything so their simulations were you know the inductance the capacitance of of the wire to every other component and the resistance and 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 it just their circuits their simple circuits would get so unbelievably massive that they couldn't even control all of their inputs and the biggest lesson they had to learn is what to neglect and what to like just say like I, we don't care about this you know right well, I think, again, that goes to, you know, what what's the intuition about the circuit? You know, so, yeah, you're right. At DC, five feet of wire, I don't really care. Right. Um, but on the other hand, you know, at two gigahertz, five feet of wire is pretty significant. So mm -hmm. uh, unworkable even. So what do you do? And I, I think that's a key. But I think that's the kind of thing a good simulation can actually give you intuition for. Um, speaking of RF, one of the things I think is hilarious on that Falstead uh, uh, simulator, I should bring it up so I to say the right thing, but there's actually a radio antenna component in it that a lot of people haven't noticed. And let's see, I think it's one of the example circuits. If you look at, yeah, if you look at the diode example circuits, there's one called AM detector. And so it's got the antenna and it's a little crystal radio and there's actually three signals coming out of that antenna <laughs> that you can demodulate. So if you change the tuned circuit, you can actually tune to the different frequencies that are being transmitted over that antenna. I think that is just such a cool, I, I think that's just sentimental. My dad had taken a little radio school before he got thrown out of it for uh, hopping trains, believe it or not. And so when I was a really young kid, that was the first circuit he showed me. Yeah, you're shaking your head, but you know it's true. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> explains so much, right? Um, but that was the first circuit he showed me was the crystal radio, right? You know, the antenna, the tuned circuit. And he, he vaguely understood it because, like I say, he had six weeks of radio school or something. And, uh, and so I think maybe that's why I'm kind of sentimental about that one. But I think that is so awesome that you can build a crystal radio in your browser and tune three different frequencies on it and see how that works. I, I just love that. Super cool. Yeah, I'm checking this out right now. Like, just the whole radio world is is generally foreign to me, so this is kind of fun. Yeah, I never got my crystal radio as a kid to work. No? No. Where'd you ground it? That's always the key. <laughs> gotta have a ground i don't think i could ever figure that part out in the instructions that's the problem i remember at a and m there was there was a class that they were doing where they'd go to the roof of the engineering building and they'd get a rusty razor blade a uh, a coat hanger and some other stuff and they they'd have to tune a, a radio which i don't know seems very unengineering, but also kind of awesome 
Well, and if you're ever a prisoner of war, that'll come in handy. Right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's a whole thing is the POW radios, right? All these the, handmade the radios. The foxhole radios? From, uh, foxhole radios, yeah. 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 Super so. cool. Well, so I think that's the key, though, is uh, models and intuition about processes. I think that's the... That's that's my take on simulation, I think. You know, it kind of goes back to what we were saying earlier, uh, and I think there's something... You can use simulations to get a feel for a circuit, but it also helps to have a feel for the circuit before you go to the simulation. Like, they're they're hand-in-hand, hand for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, Well, I that's, think that depends on what you're doing. If you're doing Parker's thing and you're trying to characterize a part, yes. I think for educational purposes... Maybe that's what you're trying to develop is that intuition, right? Sure. I'm sorry, Parker. I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, no. Is, is that was the thing is um, for my my let's say my pinball controller as the example is the really th- only thing I wasn't too sure about was you know I have to hit the certain frequency for the MOSFETs for PWM. I mean, let's say a coil, but um, I know the FETs are going to be fine for that. But I'm like, okay, what about my drive out of my microcontroller? Is 20 milliamps through a snubbing resistor of 100 ohms going to be enough drive to, so I can hit that frequency and not basically keep the MOSFET in uh, what would be unsaturation mode. And yeah, we basically we plotted out, ran a couple simulations. We're like, okay, no, it's going to turn on all the time. That's good. And fast so enough. We, it fast enough. So And then we fired it up and didn't blow up any MOSFETs yet. <laughs> <laughs> So I told you I used to do failure analysis for, well, it's Motorola. I guess I can say that now that they're pretty much long gone. But I won't mention the car maker involved, though. Uh, one of the car makers had said, boy, we've been trying this prototype out with one of your parts, and, and it's destroying them, and there's just nothing wrong with it. And it was the same kind of thing. They were driving from an output pin, and we finally found out what they were driving with it was an incandescent lamp. And so, yeah, the incandescent lamp was rated at, you know, 5 milliamps, which was okay for the drive, but... When that filament was cold, it was drawing, you know, 150 milliamps for, uh, you know, a couple of milliseconds till it got hot. And so we had to have a little discussion about inrush current and educate them on that. <laughs> you know, just because of that, I love driving uh, filaments off of constant current devices because they just take care of that for you, you know? Yes. And you can put them in series and everything and everyone's happy, right? As long as you have enough voltage. So you're saying your Christmas lights are constant current driven? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> you know, uh, actually, an- another thing kind of with the, the, the theme of like figuring out or, or feel, getting a feeling for a circuit, I- I've been working on a design with a buddy of mine, and um, he he has like, it's we're, we're doing an amplifier that, that does similar to common emitter uh, style uh, configurations of transistors or tubes. And one of the things he knows how to do is set up a, a stage, but if somebody asked him, like, hey, can you make this have a cutoff of 100 hertz? Or, hey, uh, like, what resistor would you change to increase gain? Or what would you change to decrease gain? Or whatever. Uh, he doesn't really have a feel for that yet. And what would be what's really cool about simulation is you can just figure that out. Uh, you can just say, oh, hey, let's let's multiply this cap by a factor of 10 and see what it does, you know? So now you know how I passed RF circuits when I was working on my master's. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really had that epiphany of why am I trying to figure this out? Just tell it, scan that capacitor until like, oh, look, there are 50 ohms. Woo, you know? 
So yeah, that was. Uh, I can't tell you how often I do that at work when we're when we're trying to find <laughs> like a, a general range for like say we have a trim pot that we're using for a calibration. What value? do you use for that trim pot? Well, I, what I do is I sweep a giant resistor across, find what works well, add, you know, two standard deviations on the side and there's my trim pot, you know, and, you and it takes one step in LT spice to do that or one step simulation. So, yeah. Super easy. Yeah. I did a tutorial set of tutorial videos for Hackaday probably about four years ago or so on spice. And I'm pretty sure we talk about that in those videos, but they're on YouTube on the Hackaday channel. Um, and it's, I don't know, three or four different ones, but I hadn't started it then, but the series I've been working on in the last year or so, we call it circuit VR. So, you know, because in my mind, the simulator is kind of virtual reality in the circuit world. So you don't have to actually build it, but you can still, you can build it, but not really build it. And so, you know, we've done a lot of that sort of thing and I'm trying to think, I don't really have a list. We, we finally got the site where it'll show you different uh, ser like a series like that if you're on one of them you can find all of them because that used to be a problem but I know we've done like a charge pump common emitter current mirrors uh, I think I did the wine bridge oscillator which is always a fun one and so just kind of take fun circuits like that do them in LT spice and uh, kind of talk about why they work and, and again you know it's a lot different just reading it in a book or then you can go actually tweak it and play with the numbers and Oh, when I changed this, the frequency didn't change, but the duty cycle changed. Oh, I see. You know, and it kind of helps you develop that. So, well, oh, yeah, circuit VR. Well, you know, speaking about VR, uh, what do you think the future of uh, circuit simulation is? Well, I appreciate that spontaneous question. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> so. My son and I were actually talking about a year ago because he's really big into the VR headset stuff. And I've got a couple. You know, I've got the Google one that they just shot through the head, and uh, I've got one of the cheaper Oculus ones. And I was thinking, you know, I don't know how yet, but I keep wanting to dream up some way that, especially for FPGAs, right, where you could actually fly through your design in some meaningful way, right? I think even for analog electronics, that would be really cool if you could somehow experience that design as though you were in it, not just looking at it and looking at the graphs and charts. But I don't really have a plan there, right? That's just kind of a wild dream. You but are an electron. Cool? <laughs> yeah, oh, there you go. It'd be Tron, right? It'd be like going into the, especially for you with the mixed mode stuff. It's just like a roller coaster, you know, simulator. Right. The master control program wants to see you, Parker. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> But uh, no, I, I somehow I think there's something to that, but I don't know what it is yet. So, you know, the other thing that I keep thinking somebody's going to do, and I've seen some abortive attempts to it, um, but but nothing that really struck me as finished is, you know, and this goes to your very earlier point, Parker. I mean, you know, you'd like to have some box that your simulator knew about <laughs> that you could actually generate real-time signals out of and accept real-time signals. And so, you know, you see a lot of that in, especially like in the aerospace business where you're doing hardware in the loop simulation, but that's all very custom, you know, very one of a kind, special one-off kind of stuff. And it almost seems like that's a product that's right on the edge of being possible is to say, here's my, and, and you know, National Instruments kind of has that, not really with the simulation though, right? Because you can do, you know, LabVIEW, I can do all this stuff in LabVIEW and there's a box hooked up to my USB port that you know, magically reads my counts and frequencies and voltages and all this kind of stuff. 
But it would be very interesting to see something affordable, which that kind of rules out national instruments, but affordable and usable to say, well, on my bench, I've got this box that I can say, well, let me do this circuit. But, you know, I want to see how that really sounds on a speaker or I want to I want to put it on my MOSFET, right? So your MOSFET goes in there, but all the drive circuitry is just virtual and simulated. But to do that, you got to have real-time simulation, right? You really can't do that. You know, you can't sit and take two minutes to figure out what the next uh, convergence is. So I don't know. That might be the near-term future, but I'm still dreaming about the, you know, being able to fly through my circuits and watch the current go by and <laughs> you see, you see, what's going through my mind is is even an evolution of that. You're not not only flying through your circuit; you're flying through an active simulation of your board, so you can fly into your PCB and see yeah. all the traces and everything. There you go. I, I, I would fly to... like um, more. I guess I haven't tried it yet, but uh, since I do mostly digital stuff, but having a your microcontroller simulated and your entire board layout simulated. Mainly for like current surges and stuff. I think mm-hmm. a couple EDA tools try to do that, but um, mainly for like FCCCE compliance. Like, are you going? To, are you making a ginormous radiator somewhere? Yeah, I know. Well, I know there's design rule checkers that will sit there and give you that kind of feedback, right? To say, but um, and you know, I don't know the the value of running through the boards would be uh, you'd have to simulate my jumper wires that I always have to put in, right? <laughs> Green wire. <laughs> <laughs> Told you I'm not good at the mechanical stuff, so there you go. Right? You, you know what the, uh, the biggest simulation that I think would be phenomenal, and I've seen things sort of like it, but if, if I could get a heat map that would show voltage, uh, I guess various voltages on a ground plane. Like I've mm-hmm. got heavy currents flowing through this side of my ground ground plane. Therefore, it is 0.001 volts higher than the rest of the ground. Like that kind of stuff. You know, ground shifts and things would be. But I'm sure that's ridiculous to simulate. I don't know. You think you could do it? I mean, we certainly have the computing power now. I always get the feeling that we all have computers now that could be doing lots of things and they're not right there's checking facebook or whatever so uh, making cat memes cat memes there you go uh, i'm wondering need, though i was cat meme simulator now i was wondering if uh that microcap maybe has some heat mapping type stuff that seems familiar to me but it might not have been on ground planes but it did seem like it had some heat mapping i'll have to search for that I, as a as a kind of a side note on simulation, I, I just started dipping my toes into heat simulation in Fusion 360, uh, and they do quite a bit of. I mean, I've seen some good tutorials on like here's a 20220 package transistor attached to a block of aluminum this big, and you're hammering it with five watts of power. You know, what does the heat distribution look like, and where's your hotspots going to be? And it looks really fun to do but on a hobby level it's like you'll spend your entire weekend defining materials and things just just to figure out yeah it gets hot well and you always wonder how accurate i mean i guess probably the thermodynamic guys know that but uh, you know it's kind of like economics you took economics in school and they say well this happens when this happens you go how do you measure that oh well you really can't right or the weather, which the weather has gotten better in the last 40 or 50 years, but they, they clearly don't know how to actually make that model work, or else they would say the hurricane's going to arrive at, you know, 
eight o'clock right here, and that's just not how that works, as we know all too well where we live. Um, so, yeah, uh, I, I think there's some some value to that thermal stuff, but I always wonder when I see that how really accurate that is, especially on any kind of tools that you're using, right? If I'm sure if NASA's got a tool somewhere or something, but you know, what are we using? I don't know. Well, once again, with all simulations, like you were saying earlier, it all comes down into the models, right? So if you have everything defined perfectly, then you might have a chance of it being well. I'll put it this way. Even NASA still tests things in the real world. Well, that's true. Yeah, I was looking. I don't see the heat mapping on that, but I, I, somehow that just really rang a bell with me that maybe they had that. They do have the nice digital stuff, though, uh, Parker. Take a look Magnetic at models, transient analysis. They have the smoke test, which is always nice, right, <laughs> where you can do the derating. So like I say, you ought to check that out. I, I don't know how much... You know, I think the thing is, since the guy retired, I don't think there's going to be any support. And I don't think he, uh, and I'm talking about the MicroCap 12 again, I, I don't think uh, he opened the source up. So I think it's just he kind of lets you download the distribution media free and you don't have, a, have to have a license or anything. So I don't know that like any community support is forthcoming, but, uh, but it's still a very impressive package and something you would have had to pay a lot for a year ago or however long ago it was that he opened it. I feel bad for the very last guy who paid for it. Yeah, I wondered about that too, right? Here, here's a check. Oh, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's always, you know how like some, some uh, department stores will give you a credit if like you bought it the day before a sale or whatever? Like how far back would that be reasonable to ask for your money back? Yeah, <laughs> maybe your last purchase was the uh, built that that was the ability for that guy to go on retirement, right? He yeah. hit his number he needed, right? There you go. The trip point. That could be. All right. Well, very good. Uh, guy, you guys got uh, anything else you want to add to it? Um, no, I think I'm good. I just like no, to thank I, Al for coming back on the podcast again. It's always a treat. Well, I appreciate it. I always enjoy being here. So, and this is one we didn't even do face to face. I didn't get the benefit of your company, but still, we're all—it's uh, the modern thing, right? We all video conference now. That's our lives. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks a lot for coming on, Al. Uh, would you like to uh, sign us out? Of course. That was the Macrofab Engineering Podcast, and I was and still am your guest, Al Williams. And we were your hosts, Parker Dolman. And Stephen Craig. Later, everyone. Take it easy. <laughs>